So hello and welcome back to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jassani. Before we get into today's podcast, I just wanted to take a moment to thank the people that have rated or reviewed the podcasts in iTunes. We're now up to 11 ratings, so we're slowly creeping up. Uh, but the good news is they're all five star, which is awesome. Um, and I also wanted to mention the latest people who have posted comments. So the first is from someone who goes by the name of Leo the Vet. And he writes, brilliant, these podcasts are informative and easy to listen to, extremely useful as a vet student, and I'm sure that's the same for vets in practice. The content is always at the right level and well discussed between the clinicians, perfect for long car journeys, 10 out of 10. Uh, And the second comment is from someone who goes by the name of 2005 grad, and he or she writes, really enjoying these podcasts, great to listen to when on the go. Everyone I listen to makes me think about what I do when seeing cases and gives great tips. Wish they were more frequent. And that actually is a bit of a, um, not a sore point, because obviously we would love to make the podcast more frequent, but the practicalities and logistics of doing that is a, is a challenge. Um, so I guess I just wanted to say thank you very much for those comments. And if anyone else can spare the time to uh, get onto iTunes or Stitcher Radio and rate and review the podcast, that would be great. Okay, so let's get on with our podcast today, and I'm really looking forward to today's podcast, especially as it is our first foray into ophthalmology, uh, which is definitely long, long overdue. Um, For today's podcast, I'm joined by someone whose name I'm about about to butcher, but let me give it a go. So I'm going to say it's Marianne, is it Matas Riera? Yeah, perfect. That sounds a bit anglicized, but anyway, (laughs) Uh, who is a lecturer in ophthalmology here at the RVC. Um, so thanks very much for joining me today, Marianne. Thank you. Um, so look, today I want to talk about ulcerative keratitis, or what I think most people would refer to as corneal ulceration. <laughs> but we'll, we'll fluctuate between the two, I think. Yeah. Um, before I do, though, I was wondering if you could just give the listeners a brief reminder of the anatomy of the canine and the feline eye. And obviously, if there's any major differences in the species, that would be great. Um, and I guess I'm looking for not so much detail, but what they need to know in order to allow them to kind of manage their patients clinically about the kind of main anatomical structures, that would be great. Okay. So I think if we think of the eye as having an external wall, which is um, the sclera, which is the white bed, and the cornea, which is the transparent bit, those are the walls of our eyes okay. and our patient's eyes. And um, although that we don't see much scleral disease in the clinic, we see a lot of corneal disease, um, which... Uh, they can be ulcerative, so when they stain a fluorescent uptake, or they can be non-ulcerative, which is when there's no uptake of fluorescent, and that's why fluorescent is... Don't worry, I'm not going to let you uh, get away with just that. We're going we're <laughs> to come back to that in a sure. lot more detail. <laughs> so that is a way of thinking, I think, as the external anatomy grossly. So what's the what's the posterior wall of the eye if that's the anterior wall of the eye so the posterior wall of the eye is the rest of the sclera and then there's uh, a hole where the optic nerve comes out and goes and sends all the information to the brain and that's the part that we don't see from the eye so the visual part is the more rostral part of the sclera which we see and then the cornea which is Okay, and then let's just dive a little bit deeper. So what comes after the cornea? So after the cornea, we go into the eye and we have a small, what we call anterior chamber, which is an empty cavity that is actually filled with fluid, which is transparent and is transparent so it can bring the light into the retina. Afterwards, we have the iris, which is um, the uh, tissue, which is 
mainly muscular and controls the amount of light that goes into the eye, uh, a bit like a diaphragm in those that are um, familiar with photography. Mm. Then we have the lens, which helps focusing. Um, and after that, we have the vitreal cavity, which is filled with a jelly structure, fluid, well, more jelly material. Um, and after that, we find the retina. And that's, that's the most important tissue of the eye, because that's the tissue that will receive all the light and will collate that into the optic nerve and send all that information to the brain. And that's how the eye can see. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> I must admit that. I would be lying if I said ophthalmology was a strong point. I love it, <laughs> but I wouldn't say it was a strong point. And also being a, an emergency critical care person, I guess we self-select the kinds of cases we end up seeing. But sure. um, no, so I mean, I, I love it. I wouldn't say I was very good at it. But. <laughs> I'm sure you um, were. So <clears throat> let's obviously today we're going to focus on uh, the cornea. Mm -hmm. And in particular, we're going to talk about keratitis and ulceration, that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, so I was wondering if you could give us a bit more of a detail about the actual structure of the cornea and also remind us, you know, basically what, what is the cornea for? Mm -hmm. That would be great. So the cornea, as I said, is, is the window of the eye, so allows the light to go into the eye and reach the retina. And there's four main layers that I think is important that we remember and recall from the cornea. The most external one is the epithelium, which is a very strong barrier for um, bacteria. Mm -hmm. uh, so when it's missing, we need to be concerned about bacteria invading the rest of the tissues. And it's a, an also a very strong barrier for drugs, which is also important when we select the drugs that we use to our patients. Then we have the stroma, which is like the big thick mattress. Um, so it's quite thick. Um, it's around, I would say, 400 micrometers. So um, oh, so ophthalmology-wise, it's yeah. thick. <laughs> so we have some context. How, how thick is the epithelial layer? So the epithelial layer is around 10 cells thick. 10 and cells, probably, okay. um, yeah, we are talking about a very small percentage of what we generally say 500 micrometers for the whole cornea. So a few micrometers. Oh, wow. 400 off that 500 mm -hmm. okay right so Listen. just broadly <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes just so get, sure. we get the yeah, idea no, cool. yeah. um, and the stroma is mainly made by collagen and there's some cells in there but it's mainly collagen so okay. it's just a fibrous structure to give thickness to that tissue and after the stroma we have the decemets membrane which is important because is um, what we've heard always about the decemetocele so mm. that's where it comes from mm. and it's not that it's actually the basal membrane of the endothelium which is the fourth and the more internal layer and the endothelium is what, so one one cell layer thick um, and the decemets membrane is its basal membrane. And that one layer thick is one cell next to each other and it generally doesn't divide. So once mm. it's damaged, it's damaged. And the main role of the endothelium is to keep the transparency of the cornea. Wow. <laughs> I love this stuff. Um, so... It, in terms of the roles of the specific layers of the mm -hmm. cornea, I mean, you've, you've touched on that a little bit, but yep. I guess, um, I think, because we're going to go on and talk about the types of injury that can occur, we're going to talk about the therapies, and, sure. and just from what you said already, it seems to me that it's probably worth us just continuing to try and relate everything to the corneal structure and stuff because yep. it sounds like that's quite important in terms sure. of making some decisions about things so um do, do the different layers they have specific functions so if the whole cornea is there to you said i think it was to basically be that transparency mm -hmm. allow the transmission of light do the different layers have kind of individual roles or not so um much? it's i think 
not or we can think it like that, but I think to be very um, we can be very specific, which I think we could be here for hours. Mm. But if we think as the epithelium, which is the more outer layer, mm. and the endothelium, the inner one, are in charge of protecting the inner part of the cornea, so that's trauma. Okay. So if the epithelium is missing, we're going to have... Uh, water potentially going into the stroma, hydrating that collagen, and therefore we're going to see corneal edema. Okay. And the same for the endothelium. So if the endothelium is missing, we said the endothelium keeps the cornea transparent by, by being relatively dehydrated. So if the endothelium stops working, then we're going to have water going into that stroma, and again we're going to have corneal edema. And it's not only the concern of water going into the stroma, but what about if we have bacteria going into the stroma, fungi going into the stroma, um, then we can have more serious um, diseases. Exactly. I love this. I'm going to learn so much today. It's, almost, <laughs> it's a very selfish podcast topic because I'm like, I want to learn some ophthalmology. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so <clears throat> obviously we've, I, you know, we've, I think we've um, probably stressed enough about the layers of the cornea and we'll come back and we talk about the, the pathology. Sure. But before we do that, I guess, again, we're being quite general specifically here, really. Mm. Um, but if you could kind of tell us about the different types of, I don't know, clinical presentation. No, that's the wrong word. Clinical problems, maybe, or diseases that we see affecting the cornea mm -hmm. of dogs and cats. And also whether there are any specific breeds that are more or less predisposed to. So not necessarily just ulcerative stuff, but in sure. general, just a bit of a summary. That would be awesome. Yeah. So the way I like to classify the ulcers is... Um, based on the fluorescein test, like we said before. So uh, I use my fluorescein, I see a corneal abnormality. So I'll, I'll use my fluorescein. If there's uptake of fluorescein means that the epithelial layer is missing. Okay. Therefore, I would classify that as an ulcerative keratitis. However, if the fluorescein doesn't uptake any stain in my cornea, means that that abnormality is non-ulcerative. And the differential diagnoses for one or the other are very different. Okay, so you start with any call, because we're gonna, you know, we're gonna re retouch on that mm -hmm. fluorescein staining thing, because I wanna hear what sort of tips you sure. have about that. But, so you start very much from the beginning of thinking about a, a patient that's presenting with a corneal problem. Mm -hmm defining whether it's ulcerative or not. That's yeah. sort of your start of your workflow, really. Yeah, so first thing I would say, do a Schirmer tear test. That's the first thing I would do to any of my patients that okay. come into the clinic. Because if I have a dry eye and I have an ulcer that is related to the dry eye and I put fluorescein in that eye, mm. then I'm not going to be able to evaluate their Schirmer, right? Because I've so just put stuff. do the Schirmer tear test first. And so Schirmer's and always first. I guess first. I can't um, miss the opportunity to to ask you about doing a Schirmer test um, <laughs> in terms of have you got any hints, tips, things that maybe, especially here with the students and stuff, mm -hmm. are there things that people tend to do uh, that are less than ideal when they do it that you've noticed that you could say, oh, you know, this would be better to do it this way or that way or not so much? I think they, they normally do it quite well and uh, and they get used to it really quickly. I think the difficulty is when you pull the lower eyelid down mm. and I tend to do like an L shape or an L inverted shape of the lower eyelid. So I get like um, uh, an aversion of it of the eyelid and then I can put my strip better in that little aversion of the eyelid. I so see. that helps me to have a bit of so space in there. Like a, to create yourself a exactly. space to put it in. And um, <clears throat> what about patient compliance? Do you find that most patients are... 
Yeah, so that can be tricky. And um, I, I will be completely honest, if there's a very, very wriggly dog, mm. and uh, I don't think a Shermer is that relevant for that presentation, I might skip that step. But I think... What if you, um, what if you really, really wanted to know? What would you do? Um, then it's difficult because you would consider sedation, but sedation is going to affect my readings, right? So It does. So absolutely. Yeah. So um, you sometimes just need to go through your other clinical signs of dry eye and, and trust your mm-hmm. clinical abilities, really. And in terms of, um, I'm going off on a tangent, but never, That's <laughs> never mind. In terms of um, <laughs> sedation affecting tear production, mm-hmm. like what? Because, because again, I actually, oh, oh man, we need to talk about this, don't we? <laughs> what should we talk about? That's this? fine. That's fine. Um, let's talk about it now, okay. even though <laughs> this podcast going all over the place. That's cool. You know, I want to talk about um, anesthesia, yeah, sure. <laughs> exposure, and all that stuff. But let's talk about it briefly now. Mm-hmm. Um, so sedation, you're saying, can reduce tear production, mm-hmm. right? And then let's extrapolate that further and say, I guess, how do we know that? But also then let's just quickly talk about protecting the eye under anesthesia. Fantastic. Because we absolutely must, otherwise yeah. that would be really bad of us. Absolutely. I, I, have, I have a plan to come back to where we were supposed to be. We'll get there. That's fine. <laughs> so actually one of um, our residents has, resident has done a study on corneal um, lesions after GA. And what she's found is that actually they get... Um, I think it was one-fourth of dogs will get corneal erosion lesions. Right. And by erosions is when the fluores- there's fluorescent uptake, but it's just like little dots everywhere. So it's not like a very clear fluor staining that you can see straight away. It's just like little dots everywhere, which means that there's a damage of the epithelium. Right. Um, so it is certainly really important, um, not only because the drugs that we use as anesthetics or sedations will reduce the readings but also because many patients will stay with their eyes half opened and therefore they have their corneas unprotected and um, we've we've seen some cases some with very severe corneal ulcerations post-anesthesia so it's something that is worth um, is worth mentioning and I think it's really important use some lubrication as soon as you give some sedation to a patient so there was two things because I remember when she gave that talk actually Hmm. um, one of the Friday morning things um and one of the questions that came up at the end was, you know, we're obviously a referral center and most of our anesthesias are s- significantly longer yeah. than in first opinion practice. Mm-hmm. And I think she was going to start looking at whether she could do the same study in a first opinion environment. Do you know if she's mm-hmm. doing that? Or not? Uh, I think... Um, We've kind of uh, are waiting a bit to see. Um, she's involved in other studies at the moment, so we we'd love to do it. We just need to find the logistics of how we can manage that. But I think it would be a really good, interesting study. Um, and so, so basically, we're saying some drugs reduce tear production. Mm-hmm. And how do we know that? Um, there's been certain studies that show um, before and after the use of uh, sedation. So it's just measuring mm-hmm. tear production. Exactly. Okay, cool. So some drugs and then um, eyes opened, potentially environmental, so fans, air conditioning, Absolutely. air dryers, stuff yep. like that. Yep. Um and so you should be taking some measures to protect the cornea yeah, absolutely. during heavy sedation, well, sedation, heavy sedation, and especially anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably reasonable to say that how intensive or aggressive you need to be. Actually, that's not fair because I suppose you should be you should be intensive. But how long you need to do it for depends on what your average sure. anesthesia times is. And exactly. obviously here it's longer than other places. Yeah. So what would you be recommending? Say someone in practice is listening to this and at the moment they don't really do anything. Mm-hmm. I guess the first question is they may 
what are we saying? Are we saying that they're having problems that they don't know that they're having with those eyes? No. Um, well, the that thing is some, that clinical error... Hmm. Not, it's not clinically significant? Or, or, uh, or actually we are missing some erosions that because dogs do recover very quickly and they go back to normal life fairly quickly, we don't see problems with that. But that's not to say that one in a hundred might yeah. not get a problem. It's not a nice problem to have, Exactly. But also I guess if, the, if people listening to this just stop for a moment and think... I don't know. Have I seen any cases that came back sure. a week later and they had an ulceration? And, sure. You know, so I guess that that would be useful. Mm. And what um, what are we recommending that's sort of realistic and practically possible for people to sure. do as a sort of preventative step? I think any lubricant gel type will stay quite long on the surface of the eye. And for a one-hour surgery, if you feel um, the, the palpebral fissure, if you like, with uh, some gel stuff should be okay. You could always ask your nurse to check how lubricated they are. And of course, it also depends on the conformation of that dog. You will not need to lubricate as much a German Shepherd mm. um, than a pack, which you will probably need to put every 10 minutes. So that's a great point as well. So along with everything else we've already said, it's also, you've got to decide who it is you're anesthetizing. Exactly, and absolutely. Important. And um, in terms of lubricant gels, is it like uh, not necessarily brands, although mm -hmm. we're happy to drop some brand names, it's fine. Sure. Um, but, you know, do we, are there, are there better, worse things? Does it have? To we be? normally like the, the ones that have carbomer in them and yeah. they can have a look at which brands are out there. Um, <laughs> you and can say a couple <laughs> of names, man, it's fine. Like. <laughs> and, um, and there's a hyaluronic acid as well. A higher percentage of a hyaluronic acid will help. Um, so um, I think we use the 1% hyaluronic acid, um, uh, which is a human um, eye drop, which is salivisque. Salivisque. And um, <clears throat> do we know how much that sort of stuff costs? Like, is it going to, are they going to need to add an extra pound to your anesthetic fee That's or something? That's the thing, or? because... Um, with cellulisk, and one of the good reasons why we use it is because there's no preservatives in them and they come as uh, univials mm -hmm. or mono-use files. So mm -hmm. uh, from the sterility point of view, it's they good. are fairly um, fairly good. In um, I would say for a, a general practice um, place, if they use something like viscotears or lubrithal, which uh, will probably last longer and will be a bit uh, less expensive, yeah. I think that would be a great option as well. Because I guess the, um, you know, in, 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 in real terms, I guess sure. people are always going to be wondering, well, you know, how much is it going to cost me if Absolutely. I start doing this in every anesthesia I do? Absolutely. But on the other hand, yeah, the eyes are not things to mess around with, right? I don't, mm. I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, in case you didn't realize. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, we, we will stop our tangent. But actually, I'm, I'm really glad that we um, spontaneously got onto this. I think that's uh, that's something that we definitely should be mentioning. So Sure. That's awesome. Um let me see where we want to carry on from, really. So we were talking about Schermatier testing mm -hmm. in any patient that you see that comes in and you might be even remotely suspicious that might be relevant information. And then you start your workflow in terms of corneal abnormalities as ulcerative or not. And we'll come on to that a bit in a minute. Um, apart from ulcerative keratitis or not, um, mm -hmm. actually, one of the things I was wondering when I was sort of deciding what we were talking about today is exactly what terminology we use. But anyway, forget it. Um, what other kinds of corneal diseases do we see that, that people might you know, want to know about? So dysplasias or mm -hmm. other, other random stuff? That... I think probably 
the more common ones are the ones that are ulcerative. So either a superficial ulcer okay. or a more deeper ulcer like a desmetosil or a perforated eye. Those are fairly common. Okay. Um, and then on the other spectrum from the non-ulcerative ones, um, diseases of the cornea that we see fairly frequent are more immune-mediated immune ones, which uh, for dogs I would say um, uh, chronic superficial keratitis, which is also called PANAS or is basically a lymphoplasmocytic infiltration of the cornea. So uh, you see kind of a granulation tissue and pigment coming from the ventrolateral side of the cornea and invading inwards uh, into the cornea. Is that the one that's Jim Shepard's? Yes, that's I've the one. Well done. <laughs> well done. So, <laughs> I don't know if I've seen the case in years. <laughs> and um, in cuts, I would say eosinophilic keratitis, for example, is a common... Um, um, is that an immune-mediated? It's considered immune-mediated okay. as well, yeah. And of course, sequestrums in cats, we see them fairly often, which they can or not be ulcerative. Um, and why do they occur? Sequestrums? Yeah. Oh, if you knew, you'd earn <laughs> a lot of money. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, that's Thank the you. question, big question in Random cats. Random questions. Um, <clears throat> and then, I guess in terms of, um, in terms of the, the kind of ulcerative stuff, mm -hmm. Let's just talk about the causes first. Sure. And then we'll see. I want to talk about the different presentations and severities and all that. And whether there's any correlation between causes and severity, I guess we need to touch on as well. But let's sure. just get the, the causes discussed mm -hmm. and then we can focus on the, the main bit I want to talk about. Sure. <clears throat> so what sort of, um, you know, have you got like a top five causes? Mm -hmm. So I normally, the way I kind of present it to the students or discuss with the students is, for example, for dogs, I would say if you have a young patient um, and you have an ulcer, you need to first look for entropion, look for any hairs rubbing, uh, any ectopic cilia, they need to look for that in a young patient, um, or it could have been a trauma that that patient has been into. Mm. If it's a middle-aged to old dog, it still could be trauma. Trauma is always there. But <laughs> but then in a middle-aged to elderly dog, I think we need to remember those indolent ulcers, which are now um, called skets. And skets. Skets. Mm, yes. So that <laughs> is S-C-C-E-D-S. So it's spontaneous chronic corneal epithelial defect. Wow. So that's why we call it skets, skets. because it's shorter. Okay. So that's the new, well, new, it's been 15 years now uh, that we call it, but still we call them in the land for some reason. But um, in a middle age to elderly dog, that with a superficial ulcer, they are always superficial, then you need to think that the probability is that you're dealing with a skets. Skets, mm -hmm. that's great. Um, what, what are they? Like, what is an indolent? I think I was going to ask you says, what an indolent ulcer is. Sure. Anyway. So, what is an indolent so an indolent ulcer is always a superficial ulcer, so it's only only the epithelium missing. The stroma is completely um, spared. Okay. And what happens in this disease, which we have quite a lot of interest, is that there is, um, uh, on histopath, they've shown that there's a yylin membrane that gets accumulated on that stroma. And what happens is that when the epithelium tries to grow over that stroma to cover the defect, it cannot stick to it. And then you have epithelium that is unattached to the stroma and flaps. And you can see sometimes that epithelium flapping actually when you do your um, fluorescent or you flush the eye. So what you need to do is to remove that yylin membrane to be able to, uh, for that cornea to so heal. So then the epithelium can actually Exactly, attach. exactly. Mm. Fantastic. And um, breeds that are particularly prone to that? 
school. And um, you, said, you said Middleswold are eight. Yeah. Is it a breed thing? Again, well, they used to be called also boxer ulcer, and, uh, and they still can be found in the literature. But actually, we see them in so many breeds, golden retrievers, um, German shepherds, um, even small Jack Russell Terriers, Yorkshires. There's many, many breeds that can suffer so from this. it's pretty random. Absolutely. Specifically middle to older yeah. age. Okay, cool. Um, I think that's fine. I think we've done enough on... Um, actually, I was thinking when you were saying about trauma, though. Oh, no, we haven't finished completely, actually. The trauma thing I was thinking about, there was this, there's this video doing the rounds on um, Facebook and whatever at the moment, and it's about the relationships between dogs and cats, right? Uh-huh. It's about two minutes long. The second half is all very soppy and lovely, and the dogs are grooming the cats, and the cats are grooming the dogs. It's all great. Very cute. The first half, on the other hand, is a bit more concerning because it's about cats that are not very happy about oh, their dogs. Gosh. Their dogs playing with them, and you've got this whole. Every time you look at it, you think that cat's going to scratch that eye. That cat's. Oh yes. <laughs> like, I, I shared it, and I was like, yeah, "The first half of this is how we get these cat scratches. The second half of this is just very cute." But anyway, <laughs> so I suppose in terms of trauma, that's certainly one of the. Absolutely. One of the types of trauma. Um, and what about infectious etiologies? Mm-hmm. Do you see that? So very uncommon in dogs, um, and I would say very much more common in cats, mm. where we have the feline herpes virus. Which um, there's a paper that says corneal ulceration is feline herpes related unless proven otherwise. Do you agree so, with that? Um, I think it's a bit extreme. I think it's a bit extreme, <laughs> but it is. As long as you rule out other causes like entropion or a foreign body there, so on, I think it's a fair, fair sentence actually. And do those cats typically have any other signs, or is it very much just an eye ocular thing? Uh, some cats will have uh, cat flu signs, mm. like generalized. Others will be fairly, very eye only related, and th- those are the ones that can be a bit more striking that you don't expect them to. Re- um, to improve with um, antivirals, and they actually, some of them do. So that's another question I was going to ask you. Was, um, we're going to talk about therapy in general terms, but mm-hmm. so if you had a cat and it had a corneal ulcer mm-hmm. and it had no other upper respiratory signs, yeah. so the first question, I guess, is are we using antiviral topical therapies and in a cat like that, would you routinely dispense it or not? Sure. Um, I think if... Things to remember is that uh, um, feline herpes virus is an epitheliotrophic virus. So that means that damages the epithelium mm. and will only damage the epithelium. So for a cornea to be herpes-related, it needs to be only superficial. If right. there is stromal involvement, that means that there's something else going on. Okay. So that's the first so thing that it. would help us decide whether we go for herpes or not. And then there's characteristics of uh, the dendritic ulcers in cats, which is typical of herpes or nearly pathognomonic of, and then definitely I would reach for antivirals. The more superficial ulcers that we call geographical, those are fairly common, and you cannot find another cause in that patient. Mm. You don't see foreign bodies, you don't see an ectopic, you don't see dystichia, you don't see eilidogenesis, any other cause. Then I, I don't think it's incorrect to start an antiviral. In a cat. In a cat, absolutely. Um, So two questions. One is, what does dendritic mean? Mm -hmm. So dendritic means, um, that's going to be difficult. Um, It's uh, (laughs) that you need to draw it or something. Yes. (laughs) So basically, it's like a root, if you like. If you draw a root of a a tree, that's kind of the shape. So like little fingers invading um, the superficial epithelium, if Um, that helps. That's perfect. (laughs) And the second question I'm going to have forgotten now... Um, yeah, it'll come back to me. Don't worry. Sure. Um, 
It was about dogs. I forgot. Okay, not sorry. We'll, we'll come back to it. Um, okay, cool. So I think what we should do now is to just go back. And, and I think we've, we've, in the things that you've said already, we've covered some of this already. But I, I want to kind of mm-hmm. re, reiterate to the sure. listeners just... Um, so let me present you with my kind of basic understanding. <laughs> and then Good. you can tell me whether you think that's a sort of reasonable way of thinking about all this. Or, okay. Uh, well, I know, I know what I was going to say, actually. It was not about dogs. It was about... Let me ask you this before we get into sure. it. It was about um, exposure, uh-huh. keratitis, if yeah. you like. So is that a thing? Or like if a dog if a dog mm-hmm. is driving and their head's out the window or, you know, I don't know, it's uh, they're exposed to dust or these kinds of things. I mean, do we... Because I guess I'm thinking back to time, my time in first opinion practice. It mm-hmm. was a while ago. But we would see cases with corneal injuries of various sorts. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure that we always would know why sure. <laughs> sometimes we just treat and we'll talk about the treatment in a minute but like yeah. is exposure keratitis is that a thing or not really it is certainly a thing i think if a dog pops his head out of the car yes they might if you look at him immediately you might find abnormalities but the cornea heals on its own mm. normally um the problem is when there's an infection that invades that cornea or so on and then we we, okay. we have other problems going on so it's not likely to be very severe or even not necessarily detectable exactly Exactly. i think so Uh, it does exist when you have an orbital disease that is pushing the globe forward and then the eyelids cannot blink properly over the over the cornea and left the cornea unprotected or certain breeds i suppose exactly exactly okay so my uh, my basic understanding of all of this is that basically that because I, and I was I was keen today that we talked about the layering of the sure. cornea because I think that you know which we have done and I think that that's really useful for understanding. Um, so basically, I guess what we're saying is that we've said already that the the most superficial outer layer that's exposed to the environment is the epithelium, mm-hmm. right? And so I guess in the mildest of cases, you start off with injury to the epithelium, yeah, and that may or may not progress and may or may not. Perfect. with that therapy etc yes. and, and we've talked about some of the potential causes mm-hmm. um then i guess then it's a matter of i guess that progressing deeper yes like to start to affect the stroma now it was interesting to hear you saying about the herpes virus in cats because it i guess my my understanding to be honest was that in almost any scenario you could extend into the stroma but you're saying that's not necessarily true and that you know that you can have some things that are Generally restricted to the epithelium. Sure. Um, but, but nonetheless, so, so progressing into the stroma, yep. that's a sort of more serious situation. Absolutely. And you said right at the beginning when you talked about the role of the epithelium, mm-hmm. what it's there for. So it's there to prevent infectious agents from entering into the stroma. Absolutely. It was there to maintain the hydration status of the stroma, yep. to then become overhydrated. Mm-hmm. So as things progress into the stroma, then those kinds of things might occur. Yeah, absolutely. And then if you get, if you progress more and more deeper, then you get to the situation where you might start to affect decimates membrane. Mm -hmm. And in the worst case scenario, that's going to perforate. Absolutely. And I guess for me, I've always looked, I sort of looked at that as a progression of severity. Mm -hmm. And I guess you're also saying that different etiologies are more or less likely to necessarily take you through that whole spectrum of 
methodologies. Is that? Is that yeah, is no, that I think that's great. Or? No, no, no. I think okay. it's a great. I think it's the perfect way, and I think that's the way I explain it to the students as well. Um, so the thing is that when you reach the decimates membrane, remember that what is left there is like a diameter of a red blood cell. So it's like seven microns. So when you reach the decimates, you are really, really that ulcer needs to go straight into theater nearly. So it it is a very serious condition. Um, and for diseases to progress into that stroma, mm. we normally think either they are infections, uh, and that could be like, for example, typically pseudomonas that cause melting ulcers that destroy the stroma, um, or could be fungal diseases. We don't see them very often, but we see them from time to time. Um, and sometimes they are just sterile, so absolutely no bacteria, but it's just the cornea, um, um, the, the cells that produce the stroma, um, the collagen, and those that destroy the abnormal collagen get a bit disorganized and go a bit crazy, and actually the stroma starts to melt away for actually no reason. Crazy. Absolutely. Um, so I guess, and this is probably going to be a bit difficult because I, I think it's probably quite a visual thing and that's not ideal. So we sure. maybe won't spend a very long time on it. But I guess if you could just um, walk us through the clinical findings, mm -hmm. if you like, as we start from just epithelial sure. through stroma, through decimates membrane um, perforation. So I think normally um, the way... Uh, superficial ulcers, so when only the epithelium is missing, you will not you will hardly see them unless you stain them because there's such a small area, a small surface that is missing that with a naked eye is really difficult to see. Okay. So you need to stain them to okay. see them. When you start seeing a crater looking, then it means that there's trauma missing and therefore you are dealing with a more complicated ulcer. So if you see a crater and you can appreciate that, then certainly you are dealing with something a bit more complex. And that crater is literally a crater in the stroma. Yeah. It's bits of stroma that are, that been, are missing. That are missing. Yeah, Absolutely. Cool. Um, uh, before we go deeper then mm -hmm. into the stroma, let's just talk about the fluorescein staining because we've obviously mentioned that a couple sure. of times already. And I guess if you could do two things. One is... Again, remind us about uptake versus non-uptake mm -hmm. and what that means. Sure. But also, really importantly, um, if you've got any hints or tips about which type of fluorescein stain you prefer to use, sure. what kind of errors people sometimes make when they're applying it, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. Because I know from seeing practice of ophthalmologists, I sort of changed what I used to do because I was like, sure. oh, okay, that seems like it. Um, but, you know, they'll say to you things like, oh, people do this and they shouldn't or whatever. So sure. just whatever hints, tips, okay. and what the significance is, that'd be great. We normally use the dry strips um, because they are one use and you throw them away so there's there's no risk of infection. Um, and we wet the tip a bit with saline so you get a bit of a high concentration of fluorescein. A mistake that we see very often is that with that strip you touch the cornea and yeah. that's a big mistake because <clears throat> that's going to give you a false positive. Always touch the sclera only or the conjunctiva and then let the patient blink because that's okay. going to spread the fluorescein everywhere and it's going to stain the areas that you are interested. And the other thing is always flush it away. Um, so fluorescein is actually epitheliotoxic, so you really don't want to have the minimal concentration in there. So after you've used it and you've um, you know that it has done the job, before considering evaluating the fluorescein staining mm. status of that patient, flush it away. Because so then it will help you to visualize better where the ulcer is. So two questions. One is, um, in terms of how long do you wait before you flush? Is there like... Nothing. Let the patient blink two seconds, three seconds. Yeah. By the time you reach the saline, that's enough. OK. 
Okay, and with the flushing, um, again, it sounds like a really crazy question, but mm. tips or suggestions for how to flush? Um, normally try and avoid the fluid. Um, many patients get a bit worried when the fluid gets closer to their nose. So try and avoid so putting a paper towel or the swabs around that area so it doesn't reach their noses because that, especially in brachycephalic, which really don't tolerate that really well because they probably feel they are drawing into the mm. water. Um, and do you just, do you, do you use a syringe with saline in it? Um, we actually use uh, little, steri they are called steriports. They are 10 mil saline uh, okay. uh, use. So they are little bottles that are quite flexible. So you press on the walls of the of the bottle, and um, some fluid comes okay. out. Um, single use or? Um, yes, I mean if we try. Normally, either yeah, probably we use it in the same patient for both eyes, five mils in one and five mils okay. in the other That's eye. Cool. And um, <clears throat> what do so obviously you get those drops, right? And I think we've at times had them lying around the hospital, sure. um, little pipette style yeah. things. I mean. Good idea, bad yeah, idea? Yeah, no, they, they are fine as long as um, the thing to remember is that those little pipettes, they are um, used in humans and they are mono-use as well. They are single-use. Mm -hmm. And what is very important is that because they are single-use, they don't have preservatives in them. And uh, actually, Pseudomonas loves to grow into fluorescein. So it you really it. want to avoid oh. having that little pipette standing on um, in your clinic. So for if you use a pipette, single-use only. Absolutely. And again, would you drop that onto the sclera or the conjunctiva, yes. not the cornea? So never yeah. onto the cornea? I think for a drop, it's less relevant. It's more for the strip that is paper that can damage a bit. And then what's the relevance of uptake or no uptake? Mm -hmm. So the relevance is quite important because, like we said at the beginning, um, what's going to happen is that only the stroma is going to stain. Um, so the epithelium will not stain and the decemet's membrane is not going to stain. So what you want is actually no staining at all, which means that the epithelium is covering the whole cornea. Mm. Now, if you have a crater looking, and in the center you have an area that is not taking fluorescein, so you will have like a donut shape of fluorescein mm. uptake, and you will have a crater looking. That ventral area or that more central area that is not uptaking stay, stain is probably the decemets. So that's a very, very, very deep corneal ulcer. And the thing to remember is because it's so thin, it's going to be very transparent. So sometimes we think that that's looking much better when it's actually much deeper. Okay. So that's a common mistake as wow. well. Okay, so epithelium does not take up fluorescein. Exactly. The fluorescein is actually harmful to the epithelium, so we don't like it to be on there. That's exactly. Cool. That's good. <laughs> um, the stroma does take up fluorescein. Yes. And decimus membrane doesn't. So if you have like a donut or a ring of fluorescein uptake with a non-uptaking area in the middle of it, be concerned. Bad. Yes. Um, and. Aside from the specific area that's affected, what about the rest of the cornea if you've got an ulceration? What other things what might we see? Because you were saying a lot about it being a transparent mm -hmm. structure. So Absolutely. So if you have a, a very superficial corneal ulcer where only the epithelium is missing, you will get a bit of diffuse edema, but the cornea should still be fairly transparent. And should, you should be able to see the inside of the eye. You should be able to tell the color of the iris of that patient. Okay. Um, however, when you get your stroma involved, um, and you have more, an, more of an infiltrative disease, so you have neutrophils invading that stroma and edema and blood vessels growing in there, then 
you are losing the transparency and that's telling you that the condition is much more severe and then you need to reconsider why is this happening? Why is this eye not able to to heal on its own or to heal with the medication that I'm giving? Okay, and... Um and then I guess depending on the severity and so on, there's going to be pain and redness Absolutely. and blepharospasm and mm-hmm. epiphora and all these other things yes. that, are, that are familiar to acute red eyes and so on. Um, that's cool. And uh, yeah, there was again, there was something else. It'll, it'll come back to me. I'm having I'm having one of those days. <laughs> I keep thinking of things I want to ask you and then I forget them. Um, sure. So... I guess the final thing we didn't say about was perforation, which I suppose by definition is probably quite obvious, but we should just sort of, you know, sure. what does it look like when, when, mm-hmm. when Desmond's membrane is given up? Yes. <laughs> so I think a good tip to remember is that um, if w- when there is a perforation, we will normally have a very angry-looking cornea, so it will be edematous, there might be a bit of blood. And what normally happens is that the iris um, will go and clot that, um, obstruct that uh, hole that has been created uh, on the cornea. It's a way of the eye sealing the eye. It's an auto-seal mechanism, if you like. Um, And we need to remember that the iris is pigmented. So if you see in the center of the cornea some brown or black pigment, the only way that can reach that area is because it's the iris behind it. Right. So if you have a black area on a not very nice looking cornea, you need to think where is that pigment coming from? Is it coming from the inside of the eye? Do I have a rupture in front of me? And things tips to try and see if you can reach that diagnosis is by always looking from the side of the patient because you might be able to see if the iris is moving forward going onto okay. the cornea. Okay, cool. Um, and we're going to talk about treatment now. I mean, that scenario you've just described is one where you should be worried, right? Yes. Um, actually, I remembered what it was I was going to ask you was about um, like neovascularization and vascularization. Again, if we could just, um, if you could just remind us if we're examining sure. a cornea and we think there's some of that going on, what's yep. the relevance of that? So we normally say that neovascularization is is the way that the eye has to heal, right? So um, if there's a a severe ulcer or um, an ulcer that is taking longer to heal, what will happen is that the eye will recruit all the machinery to build a blood vessel, if you like, and that's going to take 24 hours. And then... I love that description. (laughs) The machinery to make a blood vessel. Well, it's true. It's quite... If you think there's a big cylinder stuff in there. (laughs) Get delivered from somewhere. And then... Once the machinery is there, <laughs> it will grow one millimeter per day. Oh. So you can tell a bit about the chronicity of that eye uh, or of the problem in that eye by the length of your blood vessels into the cornea. Fascinating. I mean, the millimeter a day, like, where, how do we ever know that? <laughs> I guess someone just <laughs> looked like, at it <laughs> and just monitored. <laughs> Thanks. And that seems like a really good place to end part one of this podcast. Um, and so to the listeners as always then do feel free to get in touch and provide your feedback in the usual ways and also let me know if there are any topics that um, you'd really like a podcast on so you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk you can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page where there is an album that contains information about the podcast or you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag saclinpod And as I mentioned, we will release part two of this podcast on ophthalmology um, in a few weeks' time. 
So until next time then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.